Welcome to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, April 8th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Israel strikes Gaza and South Lebanon following rocket fire. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas comes under scrutiny for failing to disclose luxury trips. The Pentagon is reportedly investigating a Ukraine war plans leak. The latest U.S. Labor Department report shows 236,000 jobs were added in March. The Biden administration defends the U.S.-Afghanistan withdrawal. Thousands flee to Thailand amid renewed fighting in Myanmar. Tesla workers are accused of sharing sensitive images recorded by customer cars. The U.S. Supreme Court rules in favor of a transgender track runner. Ron DeSantis picks a finance director for his prospective presidential campaign. And protesters in France storm the BlackRock Investment Company building. In our top story, Israel strikes Gaza and South Lebanon following rocket fire. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, CNN, Associated Press, BBC News, The National, and The Guardian. Israel's military launched strikes against targets in Lebanon and Gaza early on Friday following a barrage of rockets that were fired from South Lebanon as tensions at Jerusalem's Al-Aqsa Mosque continue to worsen following Israeli police raids. Israel said that it targeted 10 sites in Gaza, including production sites and research and development sites, as well as a tunnel infrastructure. The Palestinian Ministry of Health said a children's hospital in Gaza City was damaged in the strikes. There were no reports of casualties stemming from the Israeli strikes, with the Associated Press reporting minor injuries among residents of the southern Lebanese town of Khalili and the death of a flock of sheep near the Rashidiyah Palestinian refugee camp. The Israel Defense Forces, or IDF, reported that Palestinian militants, allegedly affiliated with Hamas, fired 34 rockets from Lebanon into northern Israel on Thursday. Following the Israeli airstrikes, which hit Gaza first, Militants in the Strip reportedly fired another barrage of rockets into southern Israel. Thursday's barrage of rockets from Lebanon is the largest escalation between the two countries since Israel and Hezbollah, an Iranian-backed armed group and political party, came to blows in the 2006 war. Lebanese Prime Minister Najib Makati condemned any military operations that threatened the country's stability, while Hezbollah didn't immediately comment on the incident. The situation in the West Bank, Gaza, and Israel continues to deteriorate as violence has worsened in the last year due to an increase in Israeli raids in the West Bank following a spree of Palestinian attacks in Israel. This week, Israeli raids into Al-Aqsa Mosque triggered violent clashes. In May 2021, an 11-day conflict broke out between Israel and Hamas, which was sparked by confrontations at Al-Aqsa. Those are the facts that all of our sources agree on, and here are the narrative spins where they diverge. Let's start with the pro-Palestine narrative from Middle East Eye. Though, of course, violence and rocket fire are always terrible, the source of conflict has always been Israel's brutal occupation, which strips Palestinians of their rights, treats them like second-class citizens, and has created a large number of refugees in neighboring countries. As Israeli police brutalize Palestinian worshippers in Al-Aqsa, Israel, as the occupying power, is solely responsible for any retaliation undertaken by Palestinians. Times of Israel gives us a pro-Israel narrative. Israel has continually made its desire to live in peace clear to both the Palestinians and their regional enablers, and the blame for Thursday's escalation sits squarely on Hamas and possibly Iran as well. 
which supports terrorists throughout the region, such as Hezbollah. Israel has no interest in another Lebanon war, as that would only aggravate the already tense situation in the region. However, it will not stand by and allow terrorists to freely target Israeli civilians. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives provided by the Metaculous Prediction Community. This one says there's a 50% chance that there will be an Israel-Hezbollah war by the year 2030. Want to help us improve the news? Go to improvethenews.org pod and take our quick survey and tell us what you think. And now, back to the news. A report claims that Justice Clarence Thomas failed to disclose luxury trips. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by ProPublica, Al Jazeera, Reuters, and The Hill. U.S. Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas failed to disclose decades of luxury trips gifted by Republican mega-donor Harlan Crow, according to a new ProPublica report published on Thursday. Over the years, the trips have included international island hopping, superyacht excursions, private jet travel, and yearly retreats to a luxury resort. Just one of those trips alone, a nine-day stint in Indonesia, is estimated to have been worth more than $500,000. Thomas, a conservative judge serving in the highest U.S. court, did not list any of the trips in his annual financial disclosures. Federal disclosure legislation, however, requires justices and other officials to report such gifts. Senate Democrats are calling for an investigation into the trips. Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Dick Durbin, a Democrat, has said his panel will act and that the highest court in the land shouldn't have the lowest ethical standards. Thomas has not commented or responded to a list of questions submitted by ProPublica. Crow said in a statement that he and his wife never sought to influence Justice Thomas on any legal or political issue and that the trips are part of the hospitality they extend to all their friends. Those were the facts. Our first spin is a democratic narrative coming from Washington Post. The revelations of this ProPublica report are truly shocking. Thomas's lifestyle was being subsidized by Crow with luxury trips that ordinary Americans can barely conceive of. Thomas has significantly corroded public trust by not disclosing these trips, as required by law. Democrats must act to restore this trust and ensure that this type of major ethical transgression doesn't happen again. And the Republican narrative comes from Washington Examiner. Thomas made a mistake by not reporting the trips he was taking with his longtime family friend, but it's not the major sin that the left is making it out to be. It was simply a mistake. Thomas can amend his financial reports and we can all move on. The purpose of the financial disclosure law is to inform the public about possible conflicts of interest. In this case, there are no conflicts of interest, as there have not been any cases before the Supreme Court by Crow or his firm since Thomas joined. We have a nerd narrative that says there's a 30% chance that there will be fewer than six conservative justices in the Supreme Court on January 20th, 2025. That's according to the Metaculous Prediction Community. Eric, if you come over, you know, we you know, have lunch at my house. Like, I'll provide the ham on the sandwich, but I'm going to have to charge you 30 cents per cheese slice. That's where I'm at. Uh, I'm going to put you on blast for that, buddy. <laughs> so, just make sure you disclose it at the end <laughs> okay. of the year. Turning our attention to the conflict in Ukraine as the Pentagon is investigating a Ukraine war plans leak. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Ukraine's Kapravda. Gray Zone, Evening Standard, and Al Arabia. Classified documents detailing American and NATO plans to build up Ukraine's military ahead of a spring counteroffensive were this week leaked on social media. The Pentagon was reportedly investigating the matter while Biden officials told the New York Times they were working to get the documents removed from social media platforms, though had not yet succeeded. 
Sarcastically commenting on his own platform, Twitter owner Elon Musk seemed to brush off attempts to censor the leaked documents. Quote, yeah, you can totally delete things from the internet, he said, continuing, that works perfectly and doesn't draw attention to whatever you were trying to hide at all. The leaked documents, which were dated March 1st, outlines estimates of troop deployments across the front lines, as well as expectations of weapons deliveries to Ukraine from the U.S. and other NATO countries, and training schedules for Ukrainian forces. One document also estimates the number of troops killed in action, with Russian losses ranging between 16,000 and 17,500, while Ukrainian losses have possibly reached as many as 71,500, a ratio of roughly 1 to 4. Unnamed military analysts cited by the New York Times said the documents appear to have been modified as they overestimate Ukrainian losses while underplaying Russia's, alleging this could be a disinformation effort by Moscow. However, this has not been confirmed. The Times concedes the leaks nonetheless contain valuable information, stating, To the trained eye of a Russian war planner, field general, or intelligence analyst, the documents no doubt offer many tantalizing clues and insights. Meanwhile, in its latest intelligence briefing, Britain's defense ministry confirmed previously reported Russian gains in the Donetsk city of Bakhmut. It said Russia's army has, quote, highly likely advanced into Bakhmut's town center and has seized the west bank of the Bakhmutka River, adding that Ukraine's key supply route to the west of the town is likely severely threatened. Serhiy Cherevadyi, a spokesman for the Ukraine Eastern Military Command, told Reuters on Friday, Quote, the situation is difficult. The enemy is concentrating maximum efforts to capture Bakhmut. However, it is suffering serious losses and not reaching strategic success. All right, thanks for that update on this conflict, Eric. We have a pro-establishment narrative from the New York Times. The leaked documents overstate Ukrainian losses while underestimating those of Russia. This indicates that they were likely manipulated by the Kremlin before their release in order to help propagate the Kremlin's disinformation aims. The establishment critical narrative coming from the gray zone. If the documents were even partially faked, they would not be fooling anyone at the U.S. Department of Defense, which is the owner of the original files. Other possibilities include that the files were in fact released by the U.S. to misdirect Russia ahead of Ukraine's coming counteroffensive or that the documents are 100% authentic. And we have another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This one says there's a 9% chance there will be more than four deaths between Russia and NATO forces outside of Ukraine before July 1st, 2023. The U.S. job market adds 236,000 jobs in March. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, Guardian, Axios, the CBC, and ABC News. U.S. employers added 236,000 jobs in March, while the unemployment rate decreased to 3.5%, the Labor Department reported on Friday. By comparison, 504,000 jobs were added in January and 326,000 in February. March's numbers were 3,000 lower than forecast by economists, and the unemployment rate was down just slightly by 0.1% from 3.6% in February. Meanwhile, March also reportedly saw 480,000 Americans start job-seeking, with the labor force participation rate, people either with a job or searching for one, reaching 62.6%, the highest in three years. Economists are closely watching the latest job numbers to see whether they indicate that the economy is picking up steam or slowing down. Friday's report is the first major economic release for March, a month that saw Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank collapse. 
The U.S. Federal Reserve has imposed nine interest rate hikes in the past year in an effort to slow growth enough to reduce inflation without causing a recession, a so-called soft landing. The feds will decide whether to continue raising interest rates or pause hikes at the next meeting on May 2nd to 3rd. These March job numbers are the last the feds will see before this meeting. Thank you for the rundown of those facts, Scott. Our first spin for this story is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Deseret. While job openings were slightly down in March compared to previous months, and just a few thousand off of what economists predicted, the U.S. economy is still going strong. The numbers are solid and indicate the moves by the Fed over the past year to curb inflation without setting off a recession are working. As lead economist at Glassdoor, Daniel Zhao, told the Associated Press, the numbers from March make up a Goldilocks report. And the establishment critical narrative again comes from the New York Times. The U.S. economy is likely headed for a recession, and it may be too late for the Fed to do anything about it. The labor market is weak. Financial institutions are failing, and inflation isn't going anywhere. Banks keep talking about a soft landing, but the reality is the U.S. is about to get hit with the opposite, a very hard landing, and the Fed's policies are squarely to blame. Narrative C comes from CNN. For the average American, the reality of recent economic policies is dire. Seven in ten say they think the economy is in poor shape, and half of them say their own personal financial situation is worse now than it was a year ago. Whether jobs are up or down by a few thousand doesn't change the overall reality for those living it day to day. And we have another nerd narrative. This time, they say there's a 50% chance that the real GDP growth in the U.S. will be at least 0.97% in 2023, according to the Metaculous Prediction community. All right, Eric, one of our news editors, Claire, who was a guest host on this show last summer, shared three different news stories with me earlier today as it relates to this story. And let me read these three headlines. To okay. You. U.S. economy adds 236,000 jobs in March as labor market stays strong. All right. Mm -hmm. Next one. U.S. adds 236,000 jobs in March as labor market weakens. Third one. U.S. adds 236,000 jobs in March as unemployment rate remains little changed. So you can do <laughs> You can it's the, draw your own conclusions you on that draw, one. <laughs> exactly. Isn't that crazy? Oh, my goodness. It's crazy. It really is. In our next story, the Biden administration defends the Afghanistan withdrawal and blames Trump. Here are the facts as agreed upon by New York Times, Daily Caller, CNN, Wall Street Journal, and USA Today. The U.S. National Security Council, or NSC, on Thursday released a 12-page summary of its review of the failed August 2021 U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan, placing extensive blame on Donald Trump's administration, despite the move being ordered by and taking place under President Joe Biden. The report pointed out that Trump ordered talks with the Taliban and the removal of U.S. troops by May 2021, but claimed he fell short of giving Biden plans on how to carry out the final withdrawal during the government transition. NSC spokesman John Kirby claimed that President Biden led a rigorous decision-making process responsive to the facts on the ground, rejecting the notion that the withdrawal was chaotic despite the death of 13 U.S. troops in a deadly bombing at Kabul International Airport. Intelligence and military assessments prior to the withdrawal suggested maintaining 2,500 troops while negotiators worked on a peace deal. But the report argued such a move would, quote, not have sustained a stable and peaceful Afghanistan. Former NSC official under Trump, Lisa Curtis, said that while there were failures by both administrations, she did advise the Biden administration to renegotiate a deal with the Taliban during the transition 
but they chose not to follow her suggestion. The full, classified report was set to be shared with the U.S. House and Senate committees later on Thursday. All right. Thanks, Eric. We have a Republican spin on this story from BizPack Review. For anyone paying attention, this report is clearly a political stunt aimed at diverting blame away from those responsible. The Biden administration handed it out to reporters just 10 minutes before John Kirby's press conference, which is a classic PR move to ensure those who want to ask questions have no time to review the material at hand. Biden was in charge of this withdrawal and had every intelligence and military tool at his disposal, but he choked, and now he's playing blame games instead of taking responsibility for the 13 Americans who died under his watch. USA Today brings us a democratic narrative for this story. Any dutiful, outgoing administration would have worked tirelessly to help prepare the incoming president for such an important military operation. But Trump failed to do that. He made America look weak by inviting the Taliban to Camp David on the 18th anniversary of 9-11 and then telling them when the withdrawal would take place. Yes, the Biden administration should have anticipated the collapse and evacuated troops sooner, but its choices were constrained by conditions created by his predecessor. And we have another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This time, they say there's a 25% chance that the United States will recognize the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan before the year 2030. I think there's plenty of blame to go around for this one. You could trace this back decades if you want, this disaster. Yeah, I agree. Just a lot of finger pointing, but what's it really solving at this point? The situation is, is horrible. It, it is. has been for a long time. Yeah. Thousands flee to Thailand amid renewed Myanmar fighting. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the Irrawaddy, ABC News, Thai PBS World, Reuters, BBC News, and Al Jazeera. Thai officials on Thursday said thousands of people have fled into Thailand's province of Tak to escape fighting between the Myanmar military and rebels that recently broke out near Karen's state bordering town of Miawati. Public broadcaster Thai PBS, citing an unidentified security official, reported that over 5,000 civilians, including 800 children, crossed the border from eastern Myanmar to seek refuge this week after ethnic Karen rebels, along with pro-democracy People's Defense Force, attacked two Myanmar government outposts. The sound of automatic gunfire and explosions was reportedly audible on the Thai side of the border, with Thai security services reporting that a mortar shell crashed into a nearby village. Refugees have been housed in 10 shelters in two different Thai districts. In response to the border fighting, Thailand's Air Force has been monitoring the situation and said it's prepared to respond if its airspace is violated, as Myanmar's military has been accused of targeting civilians and airstrikes and ground operations. This latest flare-up, which claimed more than 80 lives on both sides of the conflict, comes amid a civil war that has killed thousands and displaced nearly 1.4 million people, leaving one-third of the country's population in need of aid, according to the UN. Myanmar has been plagued by armed conflict since 2021, when the military ousted the elected government of Aung San Suu Kyi, provoking uprisings from ethnic groups, some of which had been fighting the military for decades. The armed groups have since joined with pro-democracy groups to oust the military rule. Those were the facts, and we have a few spins to talk about, beginning with the establishment-critical narrative coming from Global Times. Regional stakeholders such as ASEAN and China have sought to smooth things over to ensure peace and stability in Myanmar. But Western support for armed resistance and political extremist action have bolstered pro-national unity government militants, or NUG militants, to descend the country into civil war. Myanmar is in chaos, and the NUG's calls for revolution will only make it worse. 
and we have a pro-establishment narrative from the diplomat. The UN and ASEAN have tried and failed to change the military junta's bloodthirsty behavior that has caused thousands of deaths and atrocious crimes against humanity since its disastrous coup in February of 2021. Since there will be no sustainable peace while this illegitimate, corrupt regime remains in power, it is time for the U.S. and its allies to unequivocally support the popular resistance movement. We have a nerd narrative for this story as well, coming from the Metaculous Prediction community. It says there's a 50% chance that at least 167,000 refugees will be admitted to the U.S. from 2021 to 2024. You know, Scott, I was uh, confronted by a Karen rebel yesterday in Target. She claimed that I cut in line. Hopefully the UN and ASEAN can uh, combine forces (laughs) against this particular Karen. Send a message. You know what does it in Target? The mini Starbucks they have in the Target. That gets the Karens. Yeah, that's a Karen magnet for sure. In our next story, Tesla workers are accused of sharing sensitive images recorded by customer cars. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, NBC, and Forbes. On Thursday, Reuters, citing nine former employees, reported that between 2019 and 2022, Tesla staff privately distributed sensitive images and videos captured by customers' vehicles via the company's internal messaging system. The former staff claimed footage such as naked customers, road rage, car crashes, and children was shared. Less compromising images, including dogs and road signs, were also distributed. Seven of the employees claimed that Tesla is able to access the location of the vehicle's footage despite its customer privacy notice, claiming the recordings are anonymous. Its privacy policy, however, does inform customers that their data, which may include short video clips or images, might be collected for Tesla's analysis. Customers are able to consent or opt out of this. According to Tesla, the cameras are supposed to record a car's surrounding only when it's powered on. However, One former employee alleged that some of the footage appeared to have been taken when the cars were off. Reuters, having reached out to over 300 former staff members, spoke with over a dozen anonymous ex-employees, some of which said that the only footage they saw shared was for legitimate work purposes. All right, we have a narrative A from the American Civil Liberties Union. Tesla's vehicles are a rolling privacy nightmare, which is why this latest report is unsurprising, albeit incredibly unnerving. The car manufacturer needs to be more forthcoming about its privacy practices, and those responsible for this unacceptable breach must be held to account. It's time that the government implements more concrete privacy laws. Narrative B is coming from Not a Tesla App. While these allegations should be investigated, at this point they are just that, allegations. Tesla has been transparent about its privacy practices and has done its due diligence by implementing safeguards to protect customers' data which the car owners have complete control of. And we have a cynical narrative from Vox. The issue of privacy isn't unique to Tesla. As the world becomes increasingly automated by artificial intelligence, we become progressively reliant on someone else to protect our data and privacy. The uncomfortable reality is that this is an impossible task, and we should expect more scandals like this. But that's the price of convenience, and most seem all too keen to pay it. Eric, taking that cynical narrative perhaps a step further, I think someone would be horrified by how little privacy they have even walking down their own street now with all the cameras people have on their houses. Oh, absolutely. Constantly under video surveillance. Doesn't matter where you are. If you don't want it to show up on the evening news, then don't do that's it. Right. That's right. That's where we're Stay at. Stay off the grid. Because we will talk well, about yeah, absolutely. it. Absolutely. It'll be our top story. The Supreme Court allows a transgender athlete to continue competing. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Time Magazine, Fox News, The Washington Examiner, and Al Jazeera. 
The U.S. Supreme Court voted Thursday to allow 12-year-old transgender Becky Pepper Jackson in West Virginia to continue competing on the girls' sports teams at her middle school, while a lawsuit over a state ban continues. Justices Clarence Thomas and Samuel Alito dissented. In its unsigned brief, the court declined to act against an appeals court injunction against the state's Save Women's Sports Act, which intends to ban trans-identifying biological males from competing in girls' school sports teams. Pepper Jackson first brought her case to the U.S. District Court Judge Joseph Goodwin, who first blocked the law before ultimately ruling that it does not violate the Constitution or Title IX, the landmark 1972 gender equity legislation. The Fourth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals then voted 2-1 to one to place the law, which only allows middle school, high school, and college male athletes to play on male or co-ed teams, but females to play on any team, on hold, as the case continues through the courts. As the court ruling included no opinion, Justice Alito in his dissent said, I would grant the state's application. Among other things, enforcement of the law at issue should not be forbidden by the federal courts without any explanation. The request to lift the injunction was brought by former West Virginia State University soccer champion Lainey Armistead and her counsel with the Alliance Defending Freedom. While Alliance senior counsel Christiana Kiefer said the case isn't over, the American Civil Liberties Union called the law baseless and cruel. Scott, thank you for the facts. Our first spin is a left narrative coming from Advocate. The Supreme Court rightfully voted to allow a 12-year-old girl to continue playing the sport she loves with the teammates she's used to competing with. At a time when transgender rights are under attack all across the nation, this is a well-deserved legal win for a marginalized community fighting for its right to exist. Hopefully, this can be a springboard for court battles in the future. And we have a right narrative from Red State. The misogynistic trans rights movement has used confused young girls as cannon fodder in their push for political power. The activists who claim to be liberal have insulted iconic female figures who simply wish to protect future generations from having their athletic competitions overrun by men. This sets female athletes up for lifelong competition with biological boys and men who will undoubtedly outperform them due to physical differences. More political news as DeSantis picks his finance director for his prospective presidential campaign. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, NBC, CNBC, The Times of India, and Bloomberg. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has reportedly chosen a finance director for his prospective presidential campaign, another sign indicating DeSantis will run for the GOP presidential nomination. DeSantis and his affiliated Never Back Down PAC had made a previous series of recent hires, and now Lauren Lofstrom, who served as a finance director for Ted Cruz's 2016 presidential campaign, is poised to serve the same role for DeSantis. DeSantis has not officially declared his candidacy, but he is reportedly laying out a campaign strategy to beat forerunner former President Donald Trump. DeSantis has traveled to early primary states and is set to visit New Hampshire next week, but his team has focused on courting GOP delegates to his side. The pro-DeSantis Super PAC reported it has raised $30 million in its first month and is headed by former Trump administration official Ken Cuccinelli. Meanwhile, former President Trump's campaign raised $5 million following his indictment. While viewed as the most serious challenger to the former president, DeSantis registered 21% of support in the latest Reuters-Ipsos poll, while Trump stood at 58%, experiencing a bump after being indicted by New York prosecutors. DeSantis has had to walk a tight line as his potential candidacy has been met with scorn from President Trump and his supporters. If he decides to run, 
DeSantis would join former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley and businessman Vikek Ramaswamy as GOP candidates. Thanks for that election update, Eric. We have a pro-Trump narrative from Human Events. While Ron DeSantis may be the darling of a political establishment determined to beat Donald Trump at all costs, he is not the choice of the American people. Former President Trump is surging in the polls following the politically motivated indictment by the New York District Attorney Alvin Bragg, and the Republican electorate knows that Trump is their voice. They also know the mainstream media on both sides holds no weight with everyday Americans. Bloomberg brings the Republican narrative. It is time for a new direction, and Ron DeSantis is the best choice to carry the mantle as the GOP's leader. Whether you like or dislike Donald Trump, there is no denying that he is a volatile figure whose presence drains Americans. DeSantis is a consistent, stable figure who can represent the Republican electorate without making everything about him. Either way, Trump versus DeSantis makes for a dynamic GOP primary season. And we have another nerd narrative from the Metaculous Prediction community. This time they say there's a 40% chance that Ron DeSantis will be the Republican nominee for the 2024 U.S. presidential election. I'm still voting for Joe Walsh. I'm going to write it in. Yeah, he deserves it. His time has come. Yeah, you've said it. You've been campaigning for him for many years. This time has come. I think he's got the wisdom and the knowledge. I mean, if he can't carry Colorado, I don't know what exactly. (laughs) Our final story, protesters in France storm the BlackRock building. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by CNN, The New York Post, and The Washington Post. As protests over pension reforms continued to grip French cities, demonstrators forced their way into the building of U.S. investment giant BlackRock in Paris on Thursday. Videos shared on social media showed protesters entering the lobby of the historic Centorial Building, proceeding to chant slogans while waving red flares and setting off smoke bombs. They did not reach the company's offices on the third floor and reportedly vacated after about 10 minutes. While BlackRock had no part to play in French President Emmanuel Macron's decision to lift the pension age from 62 to 64, protesters said the move benefited the U.S. firm, which manages private pensions. One protester named Francois Onik said, The government wants to throw away pensions. It wants to force people to fund their retirement with private pension funds. But what we know is that only the rich will be able to benefit from such a setup. By Thursday, the protests had entered their 11th day. They also targeted a branch of Credit Agricole, which had its windows smashed, as well as setting fire to the La Rotonde restaurant, the location where Macron famously celebrated his 2017 election win. France's interior ministry said 154 police officers had been injured on Thursday, with 13 requiring hospital treatment. It added that the police had arrested at least 111 protesters. Meanwhile, the Observatory of Street Medics said at least 110 people were injured, and 13 of those were hospitalized. Thank you, Scott. Our first spin is a right narrative coming from The Connexion. French citizens have to embrace pension reforms. With longer life expectancies and an aging population, the cost to the state's coffers has become unsustainable. France needs to get with the times and raise the pension age like all other European countries have done. And wrapping it up with the left narrative from France 24. Despite those that say the numbers are unsustainable, the deficit for future years is not as dramatic as Macron and his supporters make it out to be. Besides, there are other ways of raising the necessary money outside of raising the pension age, including reversing the tax cuts for businesses that the Macron government itself has implemented. When do you plan to retire, Eric? What's your retirement age? You think? I'm going to retire after I visit the Eiffel Tower. That's that's my bucket list. Yeah, nice. <laughs> nice. Very relevant. I love that. I've seen the Eiffel Tower and I have not yet retired. So oh, okay. We'll see. Maybe you can retire when I see it. Yeah, there you go. <laughs>
Thanks for listening to the Improve the News podcast for Saturday, April 8th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. If you would like more information on Improve the News, visit our website, improvethenews.org. You can also download the Improve the News app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on Improve the News.